With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here we go again. By popular demand, almost 100% approval rating for David Macmillan's part one. Supermax prison in Australia. He's kindly come back over to the studio again. A few things before he starts though. Loads of people are asking, where's his movie? Where's his Danny Diet episode? Also, David has his own YouTube channel as well. So links to all three of those are going to be in the description box below this video. David's just starting out on YouTube. He's only got 50 subs right now. Let's get that up to 500 subs by the end of the year. Come on, people. Sub over to his channel. And do you realize I'll have to actually make some content? <laughs> which will most likely be me scrabbling around in the morning going, what the hell do you people want? Haven't you got lives? <laughs> Highly recommend you watch the movie. It's um, The Man Who Got Away. Link below the, in the description box. And the Danny Dyer episode. Highly recommend you watch that as well. But nowhere near as much detail as, as David's coming over here and spending time with us. So... Structure today is the Thai prison story. He ends up on death row, escapes from death row. It's never been done by a Westerner before. Then we're going to go over to, I've got two pages of your questions here. And we're going to start out just before we get to the Thai stuff. David's got some things to say. And one of the most questions is, where has he got this thespian, Shakespearean, posh accent from? And a couple of people have asked a bit more about his background. So I'm going to hand it over to you, David. Well, Sean, um, it's not really a, a posh accent. In fact, it's um, a very old-fashioned Australian accent. Um, it's a minor point, but accents changed there um, in the 70s, and partly due to an industry in which I was advertising. Um, you probably heard of Paul Hogan, haven't you? Paul Hogan. Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile, yes. <clears throat> he started out life uh, advertising cigarettes, and part of his gimmick was to have a, um, a kind of heavy Australian accent, which um, lent authenticity to it. He was so popular, politicians started adopting it. <laughs> Even though uh, most people in, in a little uh, stretch of uh, Australia spoke pretty much like I do, um, that went out of fashion. Um, it happens in society. After all, <laughs> during the Russian Revolution, all those aristocrats soon dropped their posh accents, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, that paid off. Yes, Thailand is the focus of today, and uh, we'll go into that soon. But a couple of things uh, driving uh, up here came to me. Um, the translations of the court terms uh, when you're facing a trial there. The accused is known as the sinner. <laughs> the sinner? Which country is this in? In Thailand. Oh, in Thailand. Okay. Yes. And um, all accused people are brought in in chains with a, a shaved head and a prison uniform. Um, uh, so, oh, yes, there's another term that's worth translating from there. Uh, the defense case is known as the dream. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
it probably should be known as that in the UK ever since they allowed um, uh, you know, people's backgrounds to be read up in court. That changed the rate of conviction here. The pipe dream. Yeah, it did. And, and the last phrase that came to mind from Thailand was, during punishments, as uh, the poor prisoner was bent over and a guard was dropping a heavy truncheon on his back, trying to aim for the uh, nerve point between the vertebra, uh, and the agonizing shriek was going through them. Do you know what the prisoner had to say? No. After each blow, he had to say, thank you, sir, for correcting me. <laughs> mm. Anyway, that's just a little slice of Thailand. But uh, I did notice uh, that some people um, were asking a little bit more about uh, early life there. And I got kicked out of a couple of pretty good schools Complete misunderstandings with the chemistry teacher. <laughs> LSD was mentioned. <laughs> uh, I don't know how that came up, but you know how misunderstandings are. They, they what, go bad. What age? what age is this? Uh, 16. Mm. <laughs> but um, I went into advertising and uh, more or less ended up as an um, in-house TV producer. Now, the effect of this was that... Um, it was the legitimate world. It wasn't crime, but it was so close in so many ways, full of deceit, uh, full of treachery. <clears throat> and in those days, this was back in the 70s, uh, quite a lot of bribery. Uh, Macius was the, the big agency, and it ended up with an Australian political campaign. A little trick was pulled. There's nothing like a monarchy for a trick. One government uh, was in power, the Labour government, the opposition went to the, um, what was he? He was the governor general. That's what the Queen's representative is called in Australia. He simply signed a piece of paper and that government was gone. This could happen here, more or less, but <laughs> it's not going to be used yet, though, with Brexit. Who knows? In the movie, then, the Australian movie, it shows you as a kid TV presenting. Was that a reconstruction? That was a reconstruction okay. because we couldn't find a copy of the original. Okay. Um, it was called Peter's Junior News, and it was a sappy little five-minute bit of nonsense yeah. before the main news. Wow. In which we'd, uh, young uh, newsreaders would um, spend five minutes talking about an elephant giving birth or an <laughs> you know, interesting-looking insect or something like that. And um, they liked me because I was the youngest. I was 12. Mm. Uh, and I could give gravitas to nonsense, <laughs> pretty much like what we're doing here. You know? And that was camera experience that enabled you to become more natural at interviews and stuff, was it? Um, oh, I don't know if I am really, but um, they played their own tricks on me. They had very directional microphones then, so the cameraman would crack jokes uh, as you were reading the news and, and, and try and put you <laughs> off. I even remember one to this day. Um, Cameraman said, uh, uh, what did the Bobby say to the three-headed man? <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> but it's a silly joke, but you know, it, it was hard Feel to free, James, to um, <laughs> throw jokes out. <laughs> uh, yes. I hope they're better than that one. <laughs> anyway, uh, I enjoyed that. Um, 
it was I was at a tough high school too, so I had to defend myself. So you weren't at a private independent school? No. From State my school. earnings from that I, I bought myself a place in a in a private school. Really. Okay. Uh, that's where the mistake happened with the chemistry teacher. Right. Um it was an all boys school which I found very peculiar. Um but also an eye opener in many ways. What city was that in? Uh, that was in Melbourne. Are you allowed to say the name of it, the school? Oh, it was Caulfield Grammar. Okay. Yeah. You, you'll have to bear in mind, Sean, that I've spent a lifetime not remembering people's <laughs> names and, um, well, I suppose, dragging my hands across tabletops rather than leaving fingerprints. So, yes, people, remind people me like to do to, that. People like to Google the details. But just to wrap up that, uh, that experience with advertising, um, when we started running the political campaign, we were doing interviews in the street and envelopes would be stuffed with money so that people would say what we want. Mm. Um, and I think that's not legal now, is it? Mm. But it's certainly not legal to admit to it. And the man who would be king, who became prime minister, Malcolm Fraser, um, he... Um, we got notice that this coup was going to take place before it happened. We were told to prepare for an election campaign. It would be rushed and to get everything ready. And he, uh, Malcolm Fraser, was brought down to a small studio that we rented so that it wouldn't be known to everybody. And he had a little acceptance speech to record. He was very nervous. But we had this accent in common. So um, it helped that uh, I got them to roll the cameras and record it and say, uh, Mr. Fraser, look, just give us a, a, a microphone recording level test. And he read it out. And, and then he went to what should have been the recording, which were all terrible, unusable, but we used what he <laughs> thought was not, not being used. So <clears throat> that kind of experience. Uh, oh, oh, another thing. We, we were trained. It was a big American company, that one. And we were trained in belief dynamics. That's the idea that you don't try and, and change what people believe. Whatever you're trying to sell them, you incorporate in their belief system. Now, that, you might think, came in quite useful when I decided to have some couriers uh, working with me. Um, not that I was telling them anything that wasn't true. I would protect them, and I was thoughtful about it. But... Um, I think beneath almost everybody, when they're at an airport, there's a little bit of a smuggler in them. And the crossover to actually doing it uh, is not really that great. Um, and of course, you don't detail what it might be for. So, um, so what were they smuggling, was... those couriers? And what was the overlap? What did you tell them? What was well, their belief? I'm... I um, really didn't know what to smuggle. So okay. my uh, ex-safecracker friends certainly encouraged it because I said, I'll, I'll go. I went to India and I bought uh, six kilos of hashish. Okay. And my cunning plan for bringing it back, which was in some piece of electrical equipment, founded on the fact that I just didn't have enough bribe money mm. uh, to get through um, Indian customs. So... Uh, I went to a friend's house and got a 1952 Grundig radio, a big box of a thing, just stuffed this hash in there. And 
I was pretty much saved. I, I think the I told this story to one of the writers of that first film, the Underbelly one, and and I think he used it. Um, where by the time I flew back into Australia, before I had systems and multiple passports, the suitcase was opened, and he with difficulty lifted out this radio. It was packed in so much that it buckled the uh, edge of the thing, the little <laughs> red wrappings of the hash, and it stank, you know. It, it was like a <clears throat> Turkish hookah parlor. <laughs> the, the pipe, I mean, it's a, certainly a different aroma than the other one. Um, anyway, um, it was the old days of Australia where... Um, there were still the fatherly types there. He he said to me, hmm, that's your radio, is it? Yeah, yeah. And the only thing in there except for a towel. True, true. You going back to India, son? No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. He looked around to see if anybody was watching and then said, well, you can take your radio and get going. He was telling me, don't make a habit of this. Yeah. But I marched out of the place confident that I was ace number one smuggler. Yeah. And uh, ran around town with this stuff and made enough money for the next trip. So you were a hashish guy before a heroin guy? Yes. And how yes. long was the hashish years? Um, it was really changed by um, the fact that the people were so astonished uh, my friends who were crooks back then, that this had worked, they said, well, why didn't you bring heroin, something, you know, really worthwhile? I thought, wow, they've been telling me it's a bad thing and they wouldn't touch it and only scumbags have anything to do with it. Um, and I'd, I'd used a little myself. Um, and that was one of the questions that came in. Has uh, David did. ever tried heroin himself? Um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to that. But just in outline again, I had the, um, the days running around smuggling stuff myself. Then I cultivated somebody in Bangkok and set up a quite a network of couriers. I ran that for a few years, a big task force operation closed me down, saw me got a 10-year sentence. I got out of that, went to Thailand, which we'll talk about later, faced the death penalty there, got and, out of that. Let me just stop you real sec. Mm. And there's two principal characters during these this, this part that he's just described that are going to continue into the Thai story, and they're Tommy and Michael. If you just want to briefly just say you're there again. Yes, new um, people. Michael uh, was somebody I met, and he worked for me as a courier in the beginning. He was a, a former champion pole vaulter before his knee took him out of that game and an art teacher, though he went AWOL on that one. Um, he was a heroin user, uh, but interesting thing, it didn't interfere with his life <clears throat> terribly much um, because he, he wasn't broke He could, and he was very regular in his doses. He'd have his hits of exactly certain time. You could set your watch by the time uh, Michael was having his seven o'clock plug. <clears throat> um, and he became a lifelong friend in the end, Michael. Um, he was the one that I, I, I rang in the, the darkest hours. There'd be no contact. Yeah. And he didn't ask me to explain anything. He just asked me 
where he had to go and what he had to bring. And Tommy is the, the Thai national whose uncle was one of the big, well, they say the big three, but there's four or five, but certainly one of the top golden triangle um, heroin, well, facilitators, I'll call it that, because they tax on it, they supervise, they control it. I didn't know any of that when I first came across him. And he came to cause me great problems. It's going to lead to the on. nemesis arising in the DEA, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, a young man called Bill Shinkman um, was involved in uh, Tommy's Thailand affairs and, and tracking down the uncle. Um, there'd been, as we mentioned last time, a, the wife of a DEA officer who was killed in, in Thailand. Um, you could say accidentally, but of course not, because she'd been kidnapped. If you want the story of the uncle and the DAA wife who died, the podcast number one, David's podcast number one, is in the description box below this video. Right. Um, then after Thailand, just to give the briefest of outlines, I ended up in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan. I was again facing death penalty charges there. I got out of that one. Um, That's part three of the series, <laughs> Afghanistan, <laughs> the Badlands. <laughs> it is. And, and and in a way, the hardest, it took me years to kind of make sense of any of that because it had um, some of the worst features of, of anything, whereas Thailand was a, a, a challenging uh, and awful place. It was a completely new level in, in Pakistan. Um, uh any thoughts of retiring went out the window after all of that, and I steamed into smuggling in uh, Colombia uh, and learned the wonders of cocaine and alcohol. Um, oh, not for drinking, no. Um, cocaine dissolves completely in alcohol, so you have a liquid, and you can do some very interesting things with that. <laughs> um, it's one of Escobar's techniques. Um, but, well... Did you come across uh, the the plastics made with um, uh, cocaine paste? They would um, dissolve it into everything from plastics to, to clothing, jeans. They would they would have it so it was black paste, so you wouldn't think it was white. It was cocaine, mm. and mm. yeah, they had many methods, many chemists. Well, I I think the attraction was that it's so easy to bring back. Um, it's pretty much a matter of dissolving it again, and then filtering it. And drying it off. Yeah. Uh, though it shouldn't be hurried in a microwave. A couple of friends have set fire to their kitchens. <laughs> you know, dry in haste, <laughs> repent at leisure, that's for sure. <laughs> Explaining to the neighbors why the kitchen's no longer there. So uh, that went on for quite some time until uh, I kept, this American DEA guy kept surfacing in my life. He was there in Karachi, came to gloat, I presume, uh, and then made a nuisance of himself in Scandinavia when I was doing business there. Um, so really, for near on 40 years, there's been this cycle of um, great highs and, and lows, um, which um, has been draining, as you can imagine. It should be turned into a Netflix series. It's the only way to... It's such a big story that they could convey it properly. Um, there, there are the elements there for it. Yeah. Um, often, I mean, Sean, you must look back at 
your own experience and then say, what has this taken from me? You know how people are always saying, well, it made me what I am today. Well, if, if that's true, it made me a you know, neurotic wreck. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm quite relaxed, but in our dreamscapes, they're quite a different place, aren't they? <laughs> But do you think it had any long-term effect? I on only had a fraction of your incarceration. So when I was released in December 2007, yeah, PTSD, nightmares, flashbacks, um, yoga, meditation, fitness classes, all this stuff, I believe, has helped me minimize that. Still do have occasional nightmares about prison and stuff, but um, I feel I feel pretty normal. I had anxiety issues before I got arrested, and prison kind of, Forced mm. me to grow up mentally and emotionally. I was emotionally immature. So I do, it's the cliche, like you said, it's made me what I am, but it has, it has, it has strengthened me in certain ways. Well, I suppose you're right. Um, none of us um, in crime or out will probably willingly sacrifice our experiences because of what it's brought to us. Yeah. Um, but there is always a price to pay on it. Yes. So um, where... Just to set up uh, the little, the important background to to Thailand, I'd been released from uh, prison after a decade. Uh, I found the police were still chasing me everywhere, and I was advised, "Look, wait them out. They'll run out of money." And that's true. Um, if, if you're under investigation, uh, they will soon enough not get funded for it. But in Australia, it was switched from state police to federal police. So they had endless supplies of money. So I decided to leave the country and then um, on my way through Thailand, pick up some money. Uh, part of the cycle back in those old days was um, to uh, run it through the couriers, which meant getting them different passports, once business was done and the money was in, I'd buy diamonds and other parts of the cash would be taken off to Europe and put in bank accounts. When you got, just to interrupt you there, Rupert, mm. when you got out of the Australian prison then, where did you have resources and money from? Did you actually have, you weren't broke, that's what I'm getting at. No, 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 I wasn't stony broke. Stuff probably, was stashed, was it? Or people owed you money? Uh, people owed me money. For previous transactions? Yes. Was Tommy included in that? Did he owe you? No, he 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 didn't really owe. Um, I'm just wondering how you regenerated your wealth in coming right out of prison because it's a struggle for a lot of guys that get out and they're broke. Ah, that's mostly what sends them back in. Yes. Um, and, you know what I found extraordinary in in prisons is when um, you see the young guys coming back in uh, time and again, but it's they're so happy. They're walking down the corridors and uh, saying, you know, hi there, hi there, how are you? Um, it's like they can't wait to get back in and They've made names tell their friends about their inside, two yeah. weeks outside. Yeah. Oh, and you know, these days, um, a lot of the drifters uh, and rough sleepers, they come back in on purpose. That's sad, yeah. Um, because they're loaded up when they come back in. Well, waddle back in, I suppose, as they do. You get paid because they've got a, a bumful of yeah. um, you know, tiny uh, mobile phones yeah. and usually a bit of spice, which yeah. is uh, uh, it's popular because of the drug testing. Uh, because it's not easy to test for, it became the, the recreational drug of choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and had um, people are often 
calling out man down when somebody hits the deck over spice. I tried it. It's um, it's not, uh, it's impossible to judge, and it's pretty awful anyway. <laughs> it's causing chaos in prisons worldwide right now. So there you go. It's cheaper to fill a homeless person's bum full of heroin to have that smuggled into the prison system than it is to bribe a guard. Yes, yes. Though one of the um, uh, one of the regulars at uh, Wandsworth used to uh, uh, he worked nights, so he did a delivery service. He said, "Whatever you can stuff into an envelope and press flat, it's yours for fifty, wow. which is pretty good, yeah. really." Um, so he'd he'd run around, you know, and hopefully get the right cell <laughs> <laughs> and sling them under the door, and and, and that'd be the delivery. So. How, how did you have money waiting for you okay. then, once you got out um, of Australia? I was owed about, uh, somebody owed me their house. Uh, he signed for Owed it. you a house? Yes. <laughs> um, Why did he owe you a house? Okay, his brother had taken uh, a quarter of a million to invest for me. A quarter of a million of your money? Yes. Put it in a bad investment? Clean it up. Um, his idea of cleaning it up was just to bang it in his bank account. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't much of a job. He... When the when thing went things went bad, he disappeared, got onto his yacht, and sailed the world. And so he just blew it. Never be found again. But when uh, I was getting released, I got a message saying, "Look, I'm never coming back. But uh, if you want your money back, you now own this house oh, wow. uh, on a hillside." Yeah. Well, the person who lived in there didn't much like the idea because I believe he had some <laughs> illusion. Probably backed with documents um, that he owned it himself, so he burnt it to the ground. So no, um, I know that was very. Uh, you could have at least got unsporting. You got some insurance him. first on it. Who knows what he did, but it didn't look like what I remember it being. Um, so I went up to the rubble and I sold the land. So I had about a hundred thousand, but couldn't really relax and enjoy it. Well, I mean, you don't enjoy that sort of money, but just relaxed generally after that time. Um, you know, I, I went, I tried to live a Spartan existence. I, I got a, what I'd call a disposable flat at, near the airport road. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do, whether it was a good idea or not, was go to Clelia's graveside. Mm. As I told you, she'd died in a prison fire and I always held myself responsible for uh, allowing her to be there and um, I'd never been part of that ritual of death where we go to people's graves and so everything had just been in the back of my mind um, as I went out uh, to the crematorium uh, just realized how creepy that is that she was there. Mm. Um, the closer I got, I picked up a tail. There were two policemen following me, and I thought, well, maybe they'll give me a bit of peace, but they didn't. Uh, they got closer to me behind as I got to the, um, the grave markers, and I backed away. Um, backed away like a robber who backs away from a job turned bad. Um, and to this day, I've never never been there. Oh, that's so sad. Um, so then, of course, you, you've heard about the 
South American guys who become obsessed with the people watching them. You know, they hire technical teams to try and prevent the DEA or whichever force being able to look at them. Counter surveillance. Yeah. And that does become an obsession. I, I had it myself. And um, I would, instead of trying to tune back into the normal world and do something useful or at least interesting uh, and not criminal, I was spending my days checking and doing uh, evasive driving techniques. One very good technique, by the way, is to, if you think you've got a tail, go out onto the motorway, stick in the left uh, lane so that you can hold the speed limit, mark the cars behind you as best you can, then speed up, cut behind, sorry, the cut behind the, the trucks, uh, and then you'll see them come up to try and catch you. And the reason it's on the motorway is not the speed, it's because there's very few turnoffs. Even if they start out with six cars, there's only two that are probably on you on that motorway. So they'll reveal themselves. I had a similar situation on the motorway where they were doing that. And then when I got off and they were following every street I went down, there's like six cars turning down these side streets. And I did manage to lose them. But then like 15 minutes later, they were all behind me again. I couldn't figure it out. But years later, when I was reading the police discovery, Oh, they yes. had a satellite navigation device on my Mazda RX-7. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the modern era, isn't it? Every uh, cell phone, every mobile phone is effectively a tracking device. Yeah. Um, one of the ones I found in a car was under the, uh, where the airbag was. Uh, and it was a, nothing more than a stripped-down mobile phone Yeah. Uh, with you know, no speaker uh, in it anymore. Yeah. So they could tune it in as they saw fit. Um, and I found at that time we're talking of, this is just after I, I got out of that long stretch, um, I used to take, I had a little office uh, that I'd set up with friends. And it was just really a place to spend my days. I found, I used to take a Polaroid picture every night mm. when I'd leave, take another one in the morning when I got in, compare the two, and it was kind of spot the difference game. And, of course, one morning I see, whoa, <laughs> a little bit of paper stuck under a very heavy cabinet. I uh, quietly levered that up and extracted a very sophisticated-looking bug. I was used to the old kinds that you pick up with, you know, uh, uh, a Maplin's radio that goes through the frequencies. This one didn't show on any of that equipment. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was, and, and I, it was like diffusing a bomb getting into it, Sean. <laughs> it had an Allen key on the top. And it was kind of, that was the, the sucker punch. If you turned that Allen key, it would twist the guts of it all. So wow. you'd never find out what was inside. Wow. So I cut the end off it. And what was inside was a, a spread spectrum transmitter that means it 
um, sends out radio signals on different frequencies every mm. fraction of a second and then gets recombined on their end. And I thought, wow, yeah, they're really determined. So this was my days you know, um, combating them. And I thought, uh, you know, this will never end. Actually, later on, I should say, they asked for that transmitter back. They so were the, very <laughs> so mm. the impression I'm getting here is then that you did this stretch in Australia. You hadn't committed to going back to smuggling, but now you're out there and the police are surveying you as if you are a smuggler. Yes, yes. So you're, going, you're, you're, you're just playing back into the role now because that's, what, that's the world you're in. And, and I've made everything about uh, the way I live disposable. I kept a bag with a passport in there. Um, though I actually was reporting on parole conditions at the time. Now, what do you tell your parole officer when you turn up for your appointment? You look out the window, you spot three cars and another bag lady or something, and somebody in the waiting room who's one of them. And he says, so, have you had a productive week? And you say, I guess so. I've certainly kept my eyes open, I can tell you that much. You know. Well, if I tell him, he's going to overreact, isn't he? He's going to say, well, you must be up to something. Okay, join the club. I'm up to something. He he would have breached my parole for being either a psycho who thinks he's being chased or actually being chased, and there must be some reason for it. So um, I just had to sit there and humor him. And he was a film buff. And, he, you know, I knew he was going to be bad news. And you know why? He was a film buff. He had a bicycle outside and those silly garters that they wear and a bag that it was like a little doctor's case. Uh, this guy was full of those signs that he'd be the most boring person in the room. And sure <laughs> enough, he was. But he had my fate in his hands, so... <laughs> really, Bertolucci, yeah. You can't beat those Italian masters. You're like, what the fuck time are we going to get out of here? Was he wearing Argyle socks as well? <laughs> um, just about, yeah. should have been. My friend Tutoni's hated Argyle socks. So... Um, uh, you're getting like psychologically now you're getting pushed a bit by the surveillance and the, the parole guy mm. what is your conscious decision when does that happen to jump parole and get this tie operation going again firstly as with a lot of things um, um you ask somebody that you trust and i said to michael look do you think i could get out from under this um and um he says, I think it's going to be pretty hard. You can't even get a passport. They'll be all over you, any, any application you make. So the more difficult it gets, then your old self comes back. You know, the, the Sean that used to fight any battle and take any on, on any adversary, no matter what. Um, so I, of course, plotted a way to do it um, that I thought would work. Um, it became very difficult to get false passports in the way that I used to. I began by using the Day of the Jackal method, and I'll call it that because my first fake ones came from following the instructions as laid out by old Freddie Forsyth. Thanks, Fred, for an early start. <laughs> um, by going to a graveyard, finding somebody who died in infancy, getting a copy of that birth certificate, knowing that they never would have had a passport, and simply applying for it using some bogus counter-signatory of you know, the local priest or whatever. Uh, always quite a good one. They hate talking to priests. 
So, um, but that kind of dried up. So, because they were checking the person who countersigned it. As with a British passport today, you might notice when renewing them <clears throat> that they're only really happy if the countersignature has his own passport and can be checked because they put that number in. In other words, um, unless you're, you, you've got somebody who's prepared to risk his professional career by signing to a lie that you're somebody else, it won't work. Well, not quite. <laughs> if you persuade a friend to apply for the passport himself, go through all of the stages, and in this case I did, he went to his dentist who countersigned it, brought back all the papers. And I said to Paul, right, I take all of these and we put them aside. And if the story ever comes up, you thought of traveling, but at the last minute you didn't have enough money or you didn't put in your application, throw it all out. And some scoundrel, shocked I am to hear this, but some scoundrel's obviously taken those papers and substituted his own photograph, mm. copying the dentist's signature on the back. Mm. So if they rang the dentist and said, uh, did you sign, uh, sign this application? Yes, I did. He was in the other day. They're not going to go to the trouble of saying exactly what does this guy look like. Mm. So that worked. And I had to go and see this man uh, very secretly, so I had to drop all the, the shadows. Um, I left my car in a special place. I sent my phone on another journey. And I wanted a backup one as well. Uh, so I got a New Zealand passport, which you can apply for from Australia at the time. Uh, and then another one, a British one, which I'm entitled to because I was born here. So, pretty good. Uh, I can get out of the country. I fly to Thailand, uh, having kind of said goodbyes in a roundabout way to everybody that was close to me, but not enough to, because people talk. It sounds cruel, but if um, pretty much your mother is the only person you're going to be able to say, look, I'm leaving and you won't see me for a while because um, your girlfriend's going to tell her best friend. And, um, and how does that feel, telling your mum that? Um, well, you know, of course, I said, you can travel. I'll, I'll see you in Europe. Uh, we'll meet up. And surely she's been rooting for you to just get out of prison and settle down in Australia. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know that. And, um, but she sort of understood. I'd, um, I'd ended up with a girlfriend there. Um, in Australia, and I suppose it was a kind of whirlwind thing, certainly on her part, but I think she was more invested in it than, than I was. But I remember going home to my mother and saying, look, you know, after a decade, I, I've spent a night with a girl, and I hadn't done that for so many years. And she, well, she's my mother. She doesn't really know what to say. But then again, she was, you know, uh, a woman of the world. And then next minute I was in tears saying it's not the same. So, you know, she understood that um, this life there was cracked. It was damaged beyond repair. Mm. So, um, and even my uh, friend and accountant, Max, 
IMAX. Um, he, this was a good guy. I mean, he went to prison for me rather than say a word. When the great helicopter escape, this was the fake escape set up by the Australian Federal Police to make the original drug trial go bad. Um, and he, when he'd been dragged in on it, he said nothing and did a two-year stretch, ruined his career. And then he was good guy. Oh, and there's another wrinkle to this thing. I had quite a, a heroin addiction uh, while I was running that business. It happened by accident. You had a heroin yeah. addiction when you were running which of the businesses? Um, the, um, the the major uh, thing with all the couriers. Uh, before the, the Australian sentence. Yeah, before okay. that. Now, I, I tried it and didn't think much of it. You have a bit of heroin, you throw up all over the place. So the first time you tried it, what were the circumstances? Um, a friend chopped me up a line. And, so you snorted it? Or yeah. smoked, snorted yeah. it. Okay. Have and, you ever injected it? Um, yeah, I've tried everything. Yeah. Um, but it's too, too much fiddling around. Throwing up and scratching a, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I never get a decent night's sleep. Um, complete stranger to the toilet, by the way. Constipation. God. Anyway, um, but like everybody, you know that heroin is, what shall we say, Moorish? Yes. Um, uh, Even in Thailand, I I try a little bit to make sure I wasn't, you know, washing powder or something, even though I I trusted my friends. Um, And then... I already knew the kind of trouble. I mean, I was a terrible dealer. People would ring me at three in the morning saying, I'm sick and I'd be driving out. And I think it's my fault, it's my mm. fault. But um, so I, I knew it was risky to be in there, but I was stuck in a hotel room for three weeks. There was some hold up in Chiang Mai. The goods weren't there. Somebody was being watched. So I had nothing really to do except watch Thai television, or, mm. um, very bad dubbings of Lee Marvin in M Squad. It doesn't sound right with a Thai voice, you know. You want to rest? No, I, I don't. I don't know how I remember it. <laughs> anyway, um, to fill in time, I thought I'd just have a little toot of this stuff. Next morning, oh, line wouldn't go astray before breakfast. I get back to Australia, unpack everything, um, and I'm always reluctant to do this. There's so much work gone into this damn stereo tuner. They've survived being checked at Heathrow, tried to take one apart once, couldn't get into it. Anyway, I've broken it all up, stashed the things. Uh, It was after this trip where I was delayed. So um, I started to feel a bit odd. Coming down with the flu, I thought. I'll have a whiskey, spat it out. It was horrible. I must be hungry. Tried a sandwich. I'm nauseous. Went to bed, started kicking around in the bed sheets. What's wrong with me? I know. I'll have a line of that stuff somewhere. That watch the table tapping. Oh yes. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll have a line of that. That'll straighten me out. And as soon as I said that to myself, I knew it, Sean. I'd given myself a habit, a full-on oh. Roger Rabbit. <laughs> oh. um, so there's two things that can happen then. You either do what everybody just about does and say, that's awful. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to make a plan. And I'll just have this line here and that'll put me in the frame of mind for making the plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the same applies to uh, 
everything that's got out of control. You need that uh, taste just to straighten out your head to uh, do it. But I didn't. I took a, a pile of sleeping pills yeah. and zombied out for a bit. But because it was the first one, uh, they get worse uh, after that, the withdrawal effects. Mm. But interesting thing, it didn't make me do anything I wouldn't uh, otherwise do. Michael was, uh, he was a different kind of junkie um, in the sense that he, something was wrong with his chemistry. And I found that there's about 10% of people in this world who are born with a miserable gene. And endorphins or uh, the ones in morphine, um, they get rid of the miserable gene. And they've really got a problem with this kind of thing. You know, I don't think you're that type. That's my estimation. I don't think, I think you wake up and everything might be shit. But still, you're alive and you've got a plan. And that's enough happiness or motivation to keep going, isn't it? So when you got out of prison in Australia, were you, had you kicked the heroin? Oh, yes. I I stopped using it. Okay. Mm. So... We're at the days now where you're about to leave to Thailand. Yes. I mean, I don't think there was any danger of me um, uh, ending up using again. I just just knew simply that it's uh, uh, like walking into a traffic accident. You can't do it. Um, I admire those people who can weekend it. I think they they show great resolve. But um, it's... It doesn't really work like that. So, <clears throat> anyway, um, it, it seemed like um, at least people didn't have that fear that uh, I was getting myself personally in trouble, but uh, I had all these police around and, and my life was a wreck, so I decided to leave. And I, I successfully left uh, without anybody knowing that I was around. Did you have contacts in Thailand to go to? I still had um, my very, uh, well, I wouldn't say the very first contact, but the the one that had been uh, a good friend and contact there. I'd met him and he was in the slum, really. Um, His only possession was a a great old uh, Ford that he he lovingly took care of from the 60s. But other than that, uh, I met him by chance. I went there to... uh, score a few ounces um, to smuggle from some rat bag down in the red light district. Um, and and they take a bit. I, I went down to the red light district to find one and they approach you and you kind of, kind of sift them out to find the right one and went through about five street people before um, uh, finding this one that I knew was going to be good. His little house was fine. His wife was keeping the place clean. He just had that look. Uh, he spoke about half a dozen languages, you know, not particularly well. But soon enough, um, he'd moved out to the suburbs with the, the money we'd made together. When I re- And, you know, one of the things I knew, he was a man who looked to the future. When I was, I used to use his house to pack the, uh, the stuff into the radio tuners. I saw on the table there were... Um, little bank account books that he'd put trust funds for his kids in. So this was not some fly-by-night Is this one of the guys who helps you for an escape? As in reading escape, there's people who help you. Yeah, his name was Lee. 
People um, are interested in David's books, Unforgiving Destiny. David has republished this one himself. I recommend you you um, get this one. And we've also got Escape. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through the Kindle version right now. Links will be in the description box below the video if you want to check his books out. Well, it's got a convenient index with the, uh, the people because there's so many people. Not that it's important to remember who they are, but in, in the back there's... Uh, yeah, David's got uh, some skills. He's got there's, there's all kinds of... Um, a few little drawings. And, drawings, uh, photos, uh, explanations, a guide to the people we meet. If any of this is becoming confusing, yeah. grab a copy of Unforgiving Destiny. Turn to page 404, a guide to the people we meet. It's all right there. And also, where are they now? As much as I could find out whatever happened to everybody. Uh, even the, the guy that um, uh, set up that fake helicopter thing. He was a con man. He wasn't ex-SAS. It wasn't anything of the sort. In fact, I came across him in a newspaper. He'd been pretending to be a, a regular butler and was working for Lord God knows what. Ended up selling his Bentley, the Lord's Bentley, and pocketing the silverware. And the report was him in court facing charges over this. And his defense was that he spent all the proceeds on prostitutes, cocaine, and champagne. Now, that seemed like a perfectly reasonable defense <laughs> to me, but the judge didn't have any of it and, and potted him anyway. So, so you're arriving right. now in, th in Thailand. What, what year is it you're arriving in Thailand? It's got a slight cramp in the leg. Okay. Very short. Um, <laughs> where are we now? We're in 1993. 1993, okay. Mm. So I get into Thailand, and at first it's great. Well, day one was great. An incredibly light feeling uh, of bouncing along. Um, nobody knows who you are. You've got all this past, and it evaporates as I'm walking down the street. I've got this identity... Uh, I've seen Lee, my old friend. He's given me some money. Everything's fine. The cunning plan has worked. Well, as soon as you say that about any cunning plan, uh, you, you're ignoring the dark clouds growing in the distance. Now, I'd been in touch with Tommy, and I'd told him to go next door to his office, and I, I rang the shop next door. He had a flower shop or something. No, Thai silks in Chiang Mai. And he did that, but he, he dropped all that after a while. Um, and, and I saw him briefly, but he was looking in shop windows at the glass for reflections. They were on him. And I said, whatever, <laughs> how stupid is this? Whatever, I'm staying at the Oriental, but never call there. Yak, 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 yak. And I go into some protocol about how I should contact in future and all of that. Uh, and then the next morning as I'm about to leave, uh, I get a phone call. It's Tommy. And this is in my hotel. I just saw a tunnel after that. I had to get out in a hurry. Um, I thought I was being, everybody seemed to be, instead of all wonderfully new and not connected to anything, they were all suddenly deep undercover. So how so, many days have you been in Thailand before now you've got this? Two and a half. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I've had one day of freedom. Uh, one night I met some girl that uh, I thought she'd 
picked me up at the the hotel, uh, a blonde bombshell of a girl, American from New York, sat at a table uh, across the way as I'm reading the International Herald Tribune. There's nobody else there on the Oriental's terrace. And she looks up and says, would you care to join me for a drink? Are you thinking sets up? Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're not um, set up as well in the back of your mind. The next day, I'm thinking, no, you idiot. Nobody going near you. She's working for them. Spastic. What do you think? Anyway, <laughs> so What's the she? whole. It's hard to say. I mean, we to this day don't looking know. back. Where are we? Where are they now? It's not been um, covered on, on her. No, um, I should run that one through, but. Um, the story sounded straight, but you never know. Yeah. Don't you find Americans very hard to read? I mean, you make an English crook or an English anything, and, and we know each other. But You have to live in America to be able to read them, to understand them more. But I, I find the um, American friends a good and loyal and great people. Fine. But it seems there's a tendency there to play the role a little more than here. People here go off character. They you know, try and be themselves a little bit more. But I, I found with a lot of Americans, it's ridiculous to generalize, but... Um, there's definitely, definitely If they are the bad guy, patterns. they play the bad guy. If they're the hippie, they play the hippie. I don't know. So she was... Um, again, uh, very hard to read. And and some weird thing, she pulled a, a joint out from between her breasts, saying, I said, what did you buy that here? No, I'd never buy that here. I, I bring my own. I thought, yeah, it's game, bringing it through Thai customs. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so um, get out of town, logical thing. Okay. Um, um, went, to the, uh, went to the airport, changed flights, uh, wondering how deep um, this uh, network suddenly got out. And uh, as soon as I got to the airport, I, I knew that everything had gone bad. That telltale look in the eye of the check-in clerk as she uh, took my passport. I, uh, I just have to, five minutes, I'll just go and check this one. I've got five minutes, she's telling me, and that's all over. So, um, Have you I, actually committed a crime in Thailand at, the, at this I point? I hadn't had a chance to, really. So are you yeah. thinking, all right, even if they follow me around, I haven't not done anything, they can't do anything to me? Not quite. Well, I'm in, under two false passports. Oh, so okay. that's not... And the previous conspiracy with Tommy. Uh, and anything can happen, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know what Michael once said to me? Uh, there was a jailhouse discussion about... Uh, whether it was police or robbers who, who came to the door and whether it was such and such. And he said, you know, in the end, it makes no difference. Men with guns arrived mm. and you were taken away. Mm. Were they policemen? Doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I got away from that airport by, instead of going down to arrivals, um, uh, I went to the place where the taxis come in, bringing people to the airport, grabbed one out of sequence to there. So I go to the, the backup passport. Fine. I take uh, two taxis into town, 
uh, a tuk-tuk, walk through a department store. Um, but it's a very sudden change to make here. It's hard to express it. I've got all those years behind. Then the world's closed in because this network of police are over me. I get away from that. I have one day with a sense of freedom I haven't had since I was a kid. Then it all turns bad again. Then I get away from the airport. Even though my head's burning in a taxi heading back to town, I'm still alive and free. At least I, I can move. Nothing bad can happen again. I go to a, a travel agency uh, that I knew there where, where there was somebody. I just use his phones because at that time um, there weren't really, um, there were very few uh, mobile phones uh, and the network was poor. So I had to use a landline. Um, I got in there, didn't give them much notice, um, about 20 minutes notice. I'd, uh, here was the mistake. Instead of ignoring Tommy and just sticking with Lee, my other Thai friend, I rang Tommy just to give him a heads up, like a schmuck. Yeah, Tommy, look, they're all over me like a cheap suit. There's a famous line from Heat says. <laughs> and you ought to know about that. He said, how are you, uh, you going to get away? I didn't say, come here and I'll look after you, I noticed. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's not good when they do that. Yeah. How are you going to take care of you? Um, so... Um, I threw off in case his line was tapped, uh, which I knew that particular one would be. I'm going to go down to Malaysia and take the trains. Fine, good. Um, uh, I've just got to make a... This was the mistake. I have to make a couple of calls with one of our friends. Now, blubber mouths, they'd all been talking amongst themselves, so he got off the call to me and rang straight down to that travel agency. But what's the difference, I asked myself. I'm going to be there 15 minutes. I'm 10 minutes away from it. They couldn't possibly mobilize. For what? What, what have I done anyway? Uh, who's so keen? As soon as I walk into that place, I'm walking along the arcade where the travel agency is. I spot a pile of cigarette butts over the other side. And something in me tells me person waiting there as I open the door. I don't like any of it, and following in behind me are three plainclothes tie detectives. Mm. I was breathless. I thought, mm. how much bad luck can you get? Um, I've taken all these precautions. I've got backup passports. Uh, I've taken telephone precautions. But, of course, I've made a mistake of... Uh, but I thought it was a tiny one. You know, I'm thinking, God, let me get away with some damn thing, mm. just a little one. Nope. <laughs> and then I knew, just from experience, that um, it's a long road. And I just didn't have it in me, Sean. I, I thought, I've had enough. I was 40 years old. Um, I'd fought a battle for you know, 20 of them uh, with waking up every morn morning to surveillance or, you know, when I had the energy for it, it was great. You know, I didn't mind it. But somewhere back in all of that, I thought this was supposed to be leading somewhere. The, the money or the adventure or didn't I have some stupid film I wanted to make or 
Wasn't there something else? Lost, lost. From the day of your release in Australia to the day you're describing now, how many days were you a free man for? In one sense, uh, the plane dates were eight months. Eight months of freedom. And now yeah. you've just been rearrested in Thailand. You're, you're hardly even doing anything wrong, just except for the fake passports. But in a sense, none of it. Because I'd been in supermaxes and and uh, high category prisons. I'd finagled my way to an open prison. But even there, uh, before I was released, uh, a fake police team had come down to search my room, pretending to be prison search teams. I mean, they took three hours. The, even the worst of the prison search teams don't take that long. They just run into your room, trash it, and, and that's it. Not much to do. Um, but they were slow in there because I had a little laptop uh, and they were, had to download it to those old-fashioned disks. It took forever. But I, I knew they were bad anyway. As soon as they were, that cell search was on, and it was, a, I think I told you last time, it was a little shack with its ensuite and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Their search team came in in their search team SWAT outfit, but the guy was wearing floor shines. You know, they loved those boots. Uh, but not those ones. <clears throat> so, and and I picked up a couple of surveillance guys when I was on home leaves. So, uh, in, in a sense, no time was it free. Uh, even things that some, things I'd been crafting in wood over all those years inside, I sent back with a courier. They stopped that courier, smashed them all to pieces and sent them on. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I interviewed the uh, courier fairly firmly. Uh, and he eventually admitted that, yes, he was sworn to secrecy by police who mm. told him to do it. Um, how did, yeah, the, how right. did the Thai police treat you then when they arrested you? This is your first ever arrest in Thailand. Yes, though I knew something about it because yeah. I tried to help a courier there years earlier. Um, and everything I knew about it wasn't good. Mm. They didn't treat me badly. Um, but what I gathered from them was that they'd been brought in on something about which they knew very little. They um, they knew that they had to arrest me. Um, they didn't seem to have the background. As I was being led to their car, I put my hand on the bonnet and felt it was cool. The point being that they'd been parked there for some time. So... That meant I had to back their arrival by about half an hour at least, which timed with that one telephone call mm. to tell me, but who's listening to him live? Nobody had. He later on tried to tell me that, uh, no, he checked with big people, you know, uh, and they don't have such facilities in Thailand. But we know the um, the, the American companies that have put in the telephone systems had a, a backdoor straight to Spook headquarters. 
And the other thing, who would care? And then I saw Bill Shankman there and I remembered him from the first trial. He was in that case making ludicrous claims about uh, hippies and 44-gallon drums full of heroin. And, and he smiled at me in a way that I'd remember. Um, and there was an Australian policeman there. And this was it, at the scene of your arrest? Yes, yes. And did they rough you up or anything, or were they civil? No, no, they weren't too bad. I mean, they, and they were kind of comic in a way. Um, it, it wasn't like... Um, you know, the, the ties are not inclined to uh, be violent in, in the sense that they can, they can get angry uh, uh, in a childlike way, uh, lash out at people. Um, but I guess they were kind of confused as to what all the fuss was about. Uh, the interview with the, the, the Thai police was uh, all the foreigners, uh, foreign agencies backed away at that point. They'd had their fun, proven their point. Are they interviewing you on the spot or are they taking you to a cop shop? Um, I'm taken to Chinatown Police Station. Okay, and what's it like in there? Um, Chinatown Police Station is probably one of the more miserable places to be locked up in the world. Uh, it's bars within bars within mesh. The cell was uh, small. People in there, very despairing. There were three foreigners on <clears throat> uh, sort of seaweed mats sitting in there, all facing mass either the death penalty or life sentences. Uh, a Swiss guy I met in there tried to commit suicide with um, <clears throat> how many did he take? A hundred and sixty rohypnol. You'd think that would do the job, but he was immobile for two days and then eventually began to crawl around. Um, <clears throat> but I, I was later on told that if you really want to do the job properly, it's it's quite difficult. You can take all the sleeping pills, but then you've got to tie a plastic bag around your head. I mean, I'd start laughing before I got finished, you know. This tape's not holding, damn it, you know. There's a bit of decent gaffer tape when you need one. <laughs> uh, in fact, that really is a thing that, uh, one of the things that stopped me from, I was so miserable after all of that, it, really in that Chinatown police station, that I um, uh, I thought, why go on? If I'm going to be this unlucky all of my life, this is never, ever going to work. Is this after the interview? Yeah, the interview was um, something silly. Some Thai police captain who knew nothing and a, and a translator who was a, um, part of the tourist police, he'd, he'd ask in Thai... Um, because drugs had been brought into it from a sweep of the airport, whatever was lying on the floor at the time. Uh, and they'd somebody had abandoned a, a suitcase there and it had a few hundred grams in it. But that was enough. Anything over 25 grams in Thailand is the death penalty if it's from the airport. So um, he'd ask, um, um, did did you was the money you had to buy drugs in Thailand? I'd say to the translator, I didn't come to Thailand to buy drugs, and she would translate back in Thai. He says he uh, he, he 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 was too scared to buy the drugs at first, so uh, it's getting. I, in the end, you know, I didn't know much Thai, but I could tell it was all coming out backwards, and even more jumbled because she wants my boots. 
Now you can't have boots in uh, Klong Pem. No boots for prisoner. You have flip-flop. So you give me a boot. And she's going through my wallet saying, oh, telephone card. I like telephone card. My boyfriend collects telephone Yeah, and look, uh, there's death penalty somewhere. I, it's between the telephone cards and the boots. There's something about uh, facing the machine gun. Um, so I thought, well, this, this will all have to go away soon. I've got serious suicides to commit on myself down here. Let me get back to the cells. So they're just just to clear this up then, they're basically now holding you on the grounds that they found some evidence. Someone else had abandoned some drugs at the airport. Yeah. And they're saying because you were at the airport, they were your drugs. I, I was and at the airport. now you've got the death penalty. Right. I was at the airport. I ran away. I'm responsible for everything that's now left on the airport floor. Right. Um, fine. So they could have picked something else. <laughs> anyway, uh, I know I have two passports which um, that's only worth about a year there, a uh, passport. But the money, the 50,000 quickly became five and then became a few hundred. Uh, that was money my friend Lee had kept for me. Um, and Was that money being held? Uh, well, it was in my travel bag. But also the police are taking that. Oh, yes, they've taken yeah. that. So I, I don't see that again. Because so, she said straight away, why did you have 5,000? Well, yeah, because <laughs> I got robbed. <laughs> so you're thinking, there's my money for a lawyer gone, the police have stolen it. Oh, I knew that. I knew enough about uh, Thailand and everything to know that everything, you have two choices there. You can either have somebody run down to the police station straight away and get you out. You've got seven days to do that. And that doesn't happen. I think that's why the seven days exist. Well, how know? much does that cost? Um, depends on the case, but if foreign devils are involved, that's much harder. If if you are not Thai and you can manage to keep your embassy out of it, you've got some chance of, of getting out. Um, if the case was uh, less than a kilo, yeah, you can um, pay your way out. So you're grasping onto that hope? No, I, I assumed I'd be deserted by everybody Okay. Um, in in that part of the world. Oh, they'd get around to sniffing about to uh, see what remained of me afterwards, but not for quite some time. Um, because, of course, they, they get dragged in, um, which is not actually the case. I've intervened in things before uh, and gone into police stations in Colombia and, and, and certainly um, in India, Pakistan, and never feared being dragged in on that. This will be parts three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway... Um, yeah, a very depressing place, this cell in the Chinatown police station. Um, there's no light. I, I saw No through, light? No. The, I mean, there, there is a, a, a blinding fluorescent tube up the top, but okay. there's no daylight. Mm. Just a kind of oily grill up the top where you can get a few street fumes of carbon monoxide. And your clock is the fact that uh, the traffic sounds are different. And the street sellers. It's a little taunt. You can hear the real world. You feel like one of those science fiction movies where there's a glass screen between yourself and and that's all he's ever got. And it didn't help that uh, Swiss Freddy had been busy killing himself, uh, and I hadn't worked out the means yet. And then had to listen to some really poor slob from um, where was he from? Ghana, I think. 
had to say, um, a lot of the African guys had passports from all over the place. But usually they were from the English-speaking African countries. He ended up signing for <clears throat> some water coolers down at the ports, which had 27 kilos of heroin in them. I think he was... Uh, his, his story... His dream, shall we call it, because it became his defense, uh, was that he came, he was paid to come to Thailand to buy jeans uh, because they were cheap and sell them in Africa. I mean, it's so thin, that story. Uh, it's not what you take from Thailand. Anyway, but he's certainly tearful enough to, um, uh, you know, he told me all about his sweetheart back home in the village that was expecting great things and. All of that. So there are lots of cheery stories too. The only the only people that showed any life was a little huddle of uh, Chinese Thai over in the corner. Seven of them dragged in on a big drug case, hundred and something kilos, <clears throat> deciding amongst themselves because they knew about the seven day window, who was going to take the rap, and who was walking out. And the old guy was walking out. You know, the the one had the those long wisps of hair of experience as the Chinese revere. Uh, there was some interesting conversations amongst them as to deciding who would take the fall for this because potentially it was dead. Uh, and if not, it was certainly, you know, 20 years at least uh, in bad conditions, probably sleeping on a mat somewhere. So they bought me a cake. Why? Because this Sean was three days before Christmas. <laughs> Just to put that extra icing on the cake <laughs> that I received from them. Was there no Brits in there to share it with? No. I didn't um, come across um, any real information. Oh, when Freddie came to, he'd been in prison before in a Thai prison for stealing a television from a hotel. I mean, this was the quality of the, the guys, in there, you, know, you know, top players. <clears throat> so um, I asked him what the foreigner section was like, in, uh, and he didn't give me any real solid information. You know, like If I'd been in his shoes, I'd say, Sean, when you get there, you'll go to building two. That's where most of the foreigners are, if you want but you might be better off keeping away from them because they're a real downer and everything costs twice as much. You're you talking know? about the Bangkok Hilton now? Yes, yes. What's the name of it in Thailand? It's uh, Klong Prem Area Klong Prison. Prem. Klong Prem. Klong Prem. <clears throat> in okay. La Jao. Okay. So it has all the, the many names. Uh, but the section where you first go is called Bambat. Uh, yeah, open to misinterpretation, but it's not a shower and soap story. It's... But because it means the cure. The cure. Mm. So how long are you in the Chinatown jail? Before Seven got... days. I, I end up Seven going to days. court, herded onto a bus. Uh, what was the court situation like? Um, well, on my way there, um, uh, a Thai guy that I befriended in the prison said, said, you know, the seven days we just had in the police station. Yeah, that's. Well, if it was a Yorkshire, you'd be saying, that's bloody luxury. <laughs> that's the good time, apparently. I thought, really? Okay. <laughs> they have nooses there. I mean, <laughs> um, and it's pretty much, as, uh, and I spend the day in court, which is 
a riot. People are arranging food. They're screaming to their family and friends through bars. The floors are washed with flooded toilet water. People are rattling around in chains. So I've got some work to do here. I want to know about these chains, why they're wearing them. I There was a... Um, one guy had some fancy chains all polished up. He had little garters to hold them. Interesting man to talk to. Why? Because they were welded on these chains. That means something. It ain't going to be good. Mm. <laughs> you know how those chains come off? After you're dead with a machete, your ankles are chopped off. Mm. And they take their chains back because they're quite valuable. Welded or not, they cut them off and reuse them. So I found out all about chains and their application, which was if your case was more than 10 grams, was it 50? It doesn't matter. Um, you were automatically thrown into chains because it was a potential death penalty case or life sentence. Psychologically, after eight months of relative freedom, mm. now you're facing the death penalty for the first time ever in your life. That's a unique experience. How does that feel? What's going through your head? Well, once I got over the, I want to, you know, I want to end this. Could I you want, sleep I at night? Was it keeping you awake? No, you get an exhaustion from just everything burning in your in your mind and brain over hopelessness and re-examining in, in great detail every move you've made and um, what... Uh, you realize that if if there is a destiny, it's not a good one. Um, like prisoners, a lot of them grasp onto this pipe dream. If they're doing life in America, I saw that they're going to get an appeal or something's going to happen. Were you grasping onto this? Is I'm, I'm, this isn't going to go all the way? Somehow, I'm going to get out of this. No, the interesting difference here was this was not where there would be a jury trial and there'd be some possibility of winning a case. I accepted from the very moment those policemen walked into that travel agency. And I looked around. I even looked at the gun in his holster and thought, if there's one in the chamber, I'm in business. If there's not, I'm knackered twice over. <laughs> mm. Don't take the chance. Because um, there's so many things against a bold move like that. Uh, they didn't come alone, for example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's their neck of the woods. Um, it's one thing to slip amongst a crowd out there as just another tourist, but you don't go around. So waving a gun around, and this we'll call it, I think I mentioned one other thing before, but this will be lesson two in the uselessness of guns. But it, it, it did occur to me. So um, there was no hope for uh, anything in the courts whatsoever. Or, And I knew because when I saw... Bill from the DEA and the Australians and the other agencies all involved. And they'd done all of this so they could just test out their equipment. Could they tap a phone live? Could they act on it? Could they get the ties to jump when they told them to jump? McMillan, the idiot, no, he's just uh, well, a lucky day that he's turned up, you know, because they, they, they'd said to him, you won't follow him from the airport. He'll get away from there. Oh, no, no, we'll get him. Well, they didn't. Um, but I'm not really bragging about that. I'm just saying that here's the motivation for um, the agencies to do it. They've, they've got their little otherwise harmless sucker who's good enough to give a, a bit of a chase to um, 
the agencies they're trying to train up, like the ties on their behalf. And they've got to arrest people like you because they're facilitating the really big guys they're working with, aren't they? Well, that became clear when I got into the, the Bangkok prison, how the system worked there. Um, they, uh, the Nigerians had a, a courier network that would recruit uh, from there. And after the poor slob did four runs, they'd have him arrested. That was the deal with the Explain DEA, that. Uh, that they would get that one in four arrest, keep their numbers up. Uh, there was even a guy who, <clears throat> where was he from? Portugal. His arrest was supposed to happen at Bangkok airport. He gets out of the taxi, ends up on the plane. Uh, the arresting officer didn't get the message and uh, the Americans were ringing through and so on. Do you hear that? He's saying from his experience, massive worldwide experience, that the DEA are up to their necks in the drug trafficking world, profiting from it. And the arrests they make, a lot of them are just staged to justify their budgets to get more money for equipment like David's talking about and arresting the lower level players. Biggest mafias in the world, DEA and the CIA. Yes, and they also um, fund um, counter publicity, anybody in favor of legalizing drugs and taking away the, the, the problem that that causes is being labeled as in the, in the pocket of drug lords. They put them out of business? Which wouldn't make sense at all. It's an irrational business strategy of the drug lord to uh, ask somebody to take away his black market. But uh, no, they were certainly determined. This poor slob from uh, Portugal, he rang them in Malaysia when he got there, saying, I'm through, oh, good, good. The Nigerian? Uh, uh, yeah, the, Portug the, the courier rang back. And they virtually said, what the hell? And they didn't say, oh, you're supposed to be under arrest. But um, they contacted the uh, DEA man who said, well, send him back in. We'll get him as an importer instead, just as good. <laughs> so he comes back in with this load. I mean, can you imagine? Could anybody, you know, you've decided to be a courier. You've flown over there to Malaysia, which is like quick death penalty there. Yeah. So you've got through all of that. And then they're telling you to fly back with the shit. Uh, don't you think a little bell would ring in there saying, I don't think these are good people. So he comes back in, bang, gets hit at the airport coming mm, in with it. Expendable. Yeah. Um, the reason I knew that it was all an arranged thing was that guys would come in there um, all with the same background to their arrests. That is... Uh, they were recruited. They stayed at the same guest house. It was Joe uh, that saw them. They were taken here by the same sort of people. The drivers were the same. The suitcases came from similar places. And did you spill your guts? Did you tell them all of that? In triplicate, they'd insist. Oh, yes, no name that I ever heard was left out. What's yours, by the way? A friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, mine, uh, David Schnickelgruber. Uh, um, it's with two T's. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they'd all told the, um, the DEA liaison over there, after your regular arresting officer, another one comes down who feeds information and ask silly questions about villages and hill tribes. Um, and yet this was going on, and I, uh, for something to fill my days, I'd, I'd go on other people's embassy visits 
So until they banned me, I used to go on the Americans one. And so um, Judy, that was her name. She was the uh, charge d'affaires or um, consular for the American guys. She was like a den mother, according to Kevin, the Hawaiian guy. She'd come in, how are my children getting along as they rattled their chains? Uh, I didn't have chains because I tore all my paperwork up, having learnt what they meant, and, and with a wobbly hand handed over a lawyer's card with 23.6 grams written on the back. So you've entered the Bangkok Hilton in these chains, have you? No, no, they attach them once you get there. Okay, can you describe the entry into the Bangkok Hilton and how your first cell is allocated? Um, it's, it's late in the day. The bus bumps its way in. You go through a lot of very noisy, um, metal doors and, uh, herded into a courtyard and made to squat on the ground. You think it's sort of quiet and peaceful here because there's nobody running around. And that's because they've already been locked up at four o'clock. That's the end of their day. They're in squished into the dormitories by then. Um, so everybody has to take off all his clothes and squat there naked while, um, the trustees do their work of checking the things you're allowed to have and not have your long pants. They either go into so-called stored property, in other words, missing, or, um, you can have them tailored on the spot. They had a pair of big old scissors for cutting the the knees off trousers so you could wear them as shorts because they they didn't want anybody it wasn't showing knees shoes again um you couldn't have trainers but they let you buy them illegally once you were across the line and inside there those having chains fitted go over to line up over there where a kind of uh crinkly old chain squashing machine is in place, which is better than the guy who does it manually, hammering them on. It's a C-ring. Leg through there, C-ring closed around with a hammer. He's usually a good shot with that hammer, wants to be. In fact, if you give him cigarettes, it steadies his hand, apparently. I used to give Pekarokong Tip or Melbourne favorite smokes in there just to make sure his aim was nice and steady. And a few extra for some clean ones. Before the chains, do you have to do an anal cavity search? Well, yes. This, uh, there was a kind of little sheet hanging over a piece of string. And there you could hear little oh, <laughs> surprise noises. I didn't know what that was, but I could make out somebody was bent over. And you could see a, a gloved hand. You know what's the creepy thing about the gloved hand? Uh, rubber? No. This was a, a woolen mitt. With two brown fingers, two. I mean, that, that, that one's insult. That's injury, you know. <laughs> um, so I wasn't happy, but they they spared the Europeans that one. You didn't get that. Oh no, no, no. How did you uh, dodge that? Uh, I I just looked at the guy and then started asking him something else, like, uh, "Who do I see about money here?" That that throws the corrupt mind so much that he hasn't got anything to do. And he's got shit all over his gloves. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. No rubber glove. I wasn't going to shake his hand. Rubber no. glove, take it off. Oh, no, no none of that. Um, and they were pretty rough with uh, the things that people brought in. If they had soap, they'd chop it in half. If they had shampoo, they'd squeeze it out onto a newspaper. 
and they could uh, fold that up and take it away with them. Um, but I'd been tipped to most of this by, um, and it's always a good thing, kids out there, to, um, if you're in trouble, ask somebody who's been in trouble before to give you the nuts and bolts of what happens next, the detail, because you, you'll find that you've lost the, the things that you need, address books or numbers or uh, a bit of money, if that's what counts. Did you have anything, any money hidden on you anywhere? I had uh, quite a bit, a uh, thousand baht notes folded up and stashed here and there. And where, where exactly did you stash them? Um, in the hems of um, uh, trousers. So they allowed you to keep those then? With the top part, they cut the, the bottom off. And I, I complained enough about the bottoms being cut off yeah. to um, misdirect them about that one. So that was lucky. So, yes, but also I left a thousand in an envelope that I thought would be found. So that would be defined. And a guy that was um, in charge of that, the trustee did all the poking and the roughhousing and the, the wrecking of things, but sitting in a chair with a long stick, giving the occasional clout to an old face, you know, he'd be saying in Thai to them, Ah, you're back again, wonky, whack, you know, good to see you. Huh? Street got too much for you, did it? A little bastard. You know, he had a, and you know, the crazy thing was the trustees who were his personal trustees, this guard with the stick, whenever he made some witticism like that, they would crack up laughing in the most false stage laugh and such toading crawlership. It was like some, I don't know, like farcical play where they have a chorus that laughs at everything, you know. Uh, they, they were like that, the trustees. They, you know, their guards were great guys that they worked for. And wit, every one of them was a, a <laughs> master of comedy. So funny, uh, they had to excuse themselves to throw up because they really hated them, of course. <clears throat> um, so you've got these heavy-duty chains being attached to you now. Where do you go next? No, no, I've dodged them because I, uh, they said, where's your court papers with, oh. with the amount on it? Okay. Uh, it's not that I didn't get them. I, I got them when I went to court. I see. But uh, from day to day in, inside you, um, uh, I, I, I don't know. What I destroyed all my paperwork and I just gave him the, the Thai lawyer's card with the amount written on the back. And they figured, stupid Frank, you know, foreigner, uh, he wouldn't falsify something like this. You know, why would he? So they wrote it in the book, the amount, and that stayed with me. So I avoided chains pretty much all the way through. So we're getting moved to a dorm next then without chains. Is that what's going on? No, chains and unchained were uh, mixed together. Um, so pretty much all of the other uh, foreigners were all chained up because their cases were big enough, um, including poor old Freddie, who was getting a shoelace to carry the the middle bit of his chain link around. Tie that in the middle so you don't clank. Um, and he looked at me without them and thought, oh, bastard, you know. And, uh, we got packed into a cell which um, was for the newcomers, the kind of first night center. It was a caring, sharing place. Oh, having gone through a medical, you all right? Yeah, fine. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, also uh, the trap some guy who's clearly um, in their employ going up to you, 
uh, as a foreigner saying, oh, you want to buy some drugs? I can get you some heroin. You like heroin? Heroin's good. And no thanks. Because as soon as you say yes, uh, two things happen. All your money will be sucked out of you and then you'll be having an internal nicking for it. Um, into that cell for the first night and the cell captain, another prisoner, striding around in um, Lacoste T-shirt that he, uh, was probably a fake, but he impressed his underlings with it. And he's got his own little servants who are prisoners. What does that mean, cell captain? He would be in charge of that cell. He would keep uh, uh, the ledger with everybody. He would allocate spaces. He does the head count. Is that what you mean, ledger? Yeah, yeah. And make sure there's no trouble. First night, uh, doesn't want anybody dying in a place where it'll make a mess. Um, everybody else had concrete. He had a little section of linoleum in the corner which his underlings would prepare and wash and clean and set up his little food and everything like that. And then he'd make a long speech in Thai that um, my friend was translating. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Which went, uh, it was interesting because the world over, I think it was the same speech that all such people make. Well, guys, you'll find me a hard man, but I'm a fair man. I'll beat you within an inch of your life. Oh, and by the way, I don't want any pissing in the corner toilet tonight. Oh, no. I, ask my boys. I can't stand the smell of pee. Oh, no. I can't abide it. And what, what country was he from? He, he was Thai. Okay. I'm getting this translated by a, a very good source. And then... Watching him, being able to, you know, pick up what the extra little gestures meant. Um, and uh, and then he added, just before he settled in, down on his mat, oh, by the way, number twos, don't even think about it. <laughs> down one end, there's a hole in the ground uh, with a tiny bit of uh, two layers of brick, which is the privacy element to that. I don't imagine this toilet roll. Oh, no such thing. No, there is um, Squat and the universal Asian bucket of water there. Okay. Which you eat with your right hand, you wipe your ass with your left. Just get some water on there and slap it on. And splash it all around. The... And water is... Dingleberries off with the water. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the ones that you've been treasuring, you keep them time on it. You know? It's terribly problematic when you've got a hurry ass like myself in those situations. Uh, it's a life's burden, isn't it? Need a B-day. There were no conscious B-days there, except when it rained during the rainy season. There'd be kind of backflow, which would be a kind of brown B-day. Downward uh, dog position with your ass open and the <laughs> rain coming down. Yeah. And the food doesn't help either, does it? Oh, God. Uh, we're going to get to that. What's your first meal here, then? Um, right, well, worded up, I'd, I'd been to... Oh, I was given a plastic bowl. That's your lifelong bowl for all purposes. That's for food and washing. Not in it, but you scoop up water and throw it on yourself. 
which the foreigners called the birdbath. You'd go to a tank and, and stand in front of it and oh, and the Chinese would teach you how to take your underwear off um, while having um, ankle irons on. Quite a trick. It's like, you know those little magic puzzles you get in cornflakes <laughs> where you've got two rings and you're trying to undo them and put them back? It, the same, getting underwear off. It was one leg at a time, looped through the thing. Then. So, um, we, we, um, in America, they had the bird bath. If everything's locked down, in America, bird bath is like you've got your little sink, so you just get naked and soap your armpits and your crotch and, so you don't stink too badly. <laughs> Did you find there were some prisoners who didn't like to use the... Um, open showers that they always bird bathed yeah and there were some prisoners in the open showers who would wear their underwear while mm. while showering that's um become more popular and um interestingly with the uh, muslim converts in british prisons they're all doing that so if somebody goes in uh without underwear now it's it's fr- it sounds ridiculous it's supposedly hardened criminals and um some of the stronger ones are sort of ridicule the rest for being like sheep and following on, you know, keeping the boxes on and a special pair for showering in. Um, yeah, in America, they were making fun of my foreskin. And guys had just come up and like just waggle their penises at me, all tattooed. Look at my tattoos and stuff. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, what, what do you say to that, Sean? You yeah. gotta play along, otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not, if you're a bad sport, it can go south very fast. No, no, no. You, you've got to, if you come back with a one-liner there, you're, you're safe. Really. Yes, humor can diffuse violent situations rapidly sometimes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Because I, I think people uh, are often aggressive because they're feeling you out, aren't they? Yes, uh, they're trying to see what your range is. Probing. If you don't seem affected by it, they, they go on to somebody who reacts. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Thais had some, uh, they didn't, they had tattoos of all sorts, some of which apparently deflected bullets. Um, and, <laughs> you know, when you hear a story about somebody where the tattoo failed, there'd always be an explanation for it. Oh, yes, but he had it in the wrong spot. <laughs> well, I watched the movie A Prayer Before Dawn. My friend Billy Moore, he was in the same prison as you. And it's, you know, the guys, um, I've got all this jewellery in the cock head. So it's mushrooming yeah. out. Yeah, and they inject uh, or they push in bits of polished shell and uh, beading. Uh, I asked one once what all that was about. And, oh, I, a woman very happy when you have all this. And yet there was a, uh, I don't think that's the case when this sort of. Um, you weren't tempted. Cauliflower head. No, <laughs> I, I, one of the things I resisted there. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, there's some halfwit injected himself with pure silicon, thinking it, you know, the word silicon. Oh, yeah, it's you, people have silicon implants for breasts. So I'll just pump. Well, the wang swollen up to like a one of the sort of cucumbers, um, and he was in agony for quite a while. He survived it though; it didn't actually kill him. Um, so your first meal and your first sleep, how uh, were they? Bad because uh, it um, the kind of reality of it was there. I've got a lot more of this and it, there's no... You, you can imagine when 
people don't often refer to it, but when there's the chase, the arrest, the processing, the police, the interviews, your own lawyer, somebody else, a courtroom, uh, transport, at the end of all that, you're suddenly on something that passes for a bed, in this case, a, a piece of floor. Um, but then the, the realization that this is now your life, pretty much. And you're on the floor just like huddled. Um, lined up because it was packed as always, except for the the, the room leader's little square over in the corner. Um, we were top to tail, so that you've got some of the guy's feet in your face, and if he's got chains on, that's not that's a bit rash. Are the limbs of the next person on, resting on you and stuff like that? Yes, yes, sort of flopping over. Um, that's got to be hard to sleep to get used to in the beginning. Well, I I knew that I'd be moved the next day to somewhere better. But it wasn't so much better. Um, it was the so-called foreigners building. And I looked around at, you know what I'm thinking? I mean, somewhere in here, there's some big players. It's got to be. Um, I've got bail. They've got it set up fine. You know, they're, they're organized in here. They've got their food and sleeping arrangements and all of that. I arrived there. And there's this big range of the the overflow from the world, the people that got blown into the crevices by the wind or something like that. Three-time losers, beggars of all nations, um, drifters and hopeless cases. Uh, almost nobody that's very big. And the biggest guy in there was some ship's skipper of a not particularly big boat. And he was the full guy. I think, what did he get for all that support? He had a hammock between two mangy-looking trees, between the toilets and, and the daytime seats. And what's the food been like up to now? Um, the, the food, in the, by comparison, in the court, you can buy little plastic bags filled with a kind of curry, and it's tied at the top. Inside the jail... Uh, the food was, that's right, um, scooped rice, brown rice, um, with a little garnish of uh, weevils and some other small insects for protein. Um, and that's it. Oh, yes, uh, a rotten cucumber. Not a whole one. But, no muscle yeah. man curry, Thai green curry. They're my favourites. Yeah. No, I didn't see that then. Oh, okay. no, no. <laughs> Must have been... Bad timing on my part. <laughs> you were in a different section. <laughs> no, sure, no, it wasn't. It, it, it was clear. You had to make your own food arrangements. I had a couple of tins of mackerel okay. and some dry biscuits. But I really wasn't concerned with that. So you can uh, spend money and that's buy food. Yeah. You've got money. Quickly enough, uh, learned the ropes. Uh, a guy from Boston befriended me a little too quickly downstairs the next day when I was in the foreigners building and um, he told me who to see for um, changing big notes down to smaller ones and what the local currency was now in The Cure Bombard, which was um, technically the section for drug cases that you couldn't show money there whereas in the, the, the other section the sentence prisoners section it was completely open about money. They even had a um, a general store with a bank in it. Uh, that was it was still not legal, but they allowed it. 
But in this place, the cure, they had to have a pretense of some other currency, which they made out of little sachets of um, headache powders. Why? Well, they were called tamjai, meaning strong heart. And these little packets, um, their virtue was they were cheap to buy, but a fixed price, and they couldn't be forged, of course, because it's too much trouble. So you would buy a, a packet of cigarettes for instead of 35p, it would be, say, 35 of these tamjai, which people would carry around in, in rubber bands. That The tamjai economy would be a, a good Keynesian model of economics for anybody studying how, um, I think, Maduro in Venezuela today would learn something from the Tamjai currency system in, in the Thai jail because they knew you couldn't flood the market with these things. And when the currency got too battered and old, it was an excuse to destroy a lot. And they'd have a, a public boiling of it in a vat, destroying or withdrawing it from, from a, a saturated market, as it were, and destroy all that. So this was the currency, had to arrange uh, something that you call a bed, which would be a few blankets sewn together. And a beard. A, oh, sorry, a, a bed. I a was bed. Th- uh, yeah, I was thinking of something else. But it is a bed, yeah. Um, I was thinking of the accent in which they pronounced bed. It was beard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where to put the said bed? Um, you had to rent a space within the cell. The dormitory I was put into was built for 64, had 128 in there. That included the walkway, uh, the surrounds of the toilets. You could buy yourself a bit of cardboard to sleep on in there. Um, It had fans, but it desperately needed something to keep that air in circulation. And you had about a width of um, 12 or 14 inches. and that was your life. What's the climate like? Um, tropical, <laughs> steamy, um, kind of smelly. Humid. Yeah. Um, really so much so that all your time in... People people would time their days so that they had a, a major birdbath before lock-up, would go upstairs with their uh, little bits of food and... Um, pretty much stripped down to their shorts and and, and lie on their towels or whatever they had so they could at at least keep cool enough to sleep. Uh, I found um, a couple of doors next to me. Uh, When I say doors, they weren't. A couple of people next to me. It was uh, a Thai who'd been in there 20 years in that same dormitory, in that same slither of uh, bed space. As um, as people do, he had his own kind of little hierarchy. He was sort of respected for being around. He, he had a little workshop downstairs somewhere, which was the only sort of closed room that prisoners had. Uh, he took the shells and uh, he was allowed to use the sanding machine to make them the right shape. They took these shells and made kind of mother of pearl paintings out of them, which the guards would sell outside for, uh, I don't know, 50 pounds. And they'd get um, and they, well, they'd get next to nothing for a jar of coffee or a few extra tamjai or something. Um, 
interestingly, because that I could see how it was so hard to get privacy because even that one uh, little workshop where the old guy was, he used to rent it out several times a day for gay trysts uh, that would go on. Uh, usually two or more often four uh, would go in there. Maybe it was cheaper that way. I don't know. <laughs> if we're going to rent a room, well, let's, you know. I was at one prison once where the library basically became an outpost for blowjobs. Mm. Yeah. Oh, right. Rip-roaring rip train. Uh, well, why? There was a bit of privacy there, was it? Yes, there was. There was no librarian at this particular prison, and it was off in the like the corner of the prison away from the guard tower. Oh, right. Did you say paid ones? Yeah, there's there's a trade in prostitution. There's also people extorting um, younger prisoners, punks, into just doing things for them or else they threaten to beat them up and stuff like that. Ah, right. Mm. There was, I I gathered from, in the Thai prison, it was mostly willing partners there. Okay. Um, Some of them used to set up in the dormitory, they tie a towel to the back railings of the the window or the vents and the other end kind of nailed down to the floor and make a kind of lean to um, uh, somebody. Um, my American helper turned to me one night and said, David, you, uh, you into the gay scene at all? I thought, that's not really the thing I wanted to hear on my second night in a prison. <laughs> uh, hey, some of those lady boys look like women. <laughs> There was a whole um, section full of um, ladyboys in in there. They had their own building. And they used to have a kind of, well, open house on Saturdays. You could visit them. There was a German guy who was about like in his 50s, uh, you know, very, well, Germanic in, in in a cliched way, who ended up visiting there one Saturday and it changed his life. He said, David, I got a lady boy last week. Uh, you, you don't know. I think I do. No, it's just, well, it, you know, he, he. I went to watch the Thai lady boy show in Guildford, and then I put a post on, I think it might have been Facebook, and I said, look, if you were in prison mm. and you've gone, like, say, five years without sex, and the lady boy looked like a woman and she'd had her man parts removed, she's had the operation. Would you be willing, would you contemplate at least receiving oral sex? And half of them were like, yeah, you know, let's be open-minded, just go for it, you'll be so desperate, blah, blah, blah. And the other half were like, no way, that person was born with a penis, blah, 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 blah. Or did you suspect those who were protesting very loudly? <laughs> it's always, were, my trans uh, friend Zena yeah. said it's always the biggest, baddest homophobics oh, yeah. that are coming to her for the blowjobs. Yeah, That's no, the cover surprised. story. Not surprised. So were you tempted, David, seeing uh, those beautiful lady boys? No, most of them <laughs> were pretty ugly. Okay. Uh, I... I don't, there was no crying game moment <laughs> of that nature anyway uh, in my Thai experience. And I think uh, the fact that at that time um, AIDS was fatal would be uh, another was, It was AIDS quite Yeah, a lot prevalent. of people. In fact, it was so many people were being um, dying from that. They had a special section of um, people with HIV and who were on the way out. And... Um, I saw it later on 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 the night I escaped. I'd, I'd been down there anyway, just to kind of check it out. 
but a very pitiful sight, row after row of people, uh, skin a mottled sort of purpley blue and, and a smell that's unique to death um, of suppurating skin and, and pustular sores. Uh, uh, yeah, a smell that I can bring back to mind to this day. Uh, in, in Billy Moore's book, Pro Before Dawn, some people had weaponized by getting syringes with blood, with uh, AIDS, oh, yeah. and threatening, you know, threaten, they, they, they would fight or they would threaten to fight you with these syringes. And it was kind of the way they, they used to, to uh, you know, was it intimidate a, a, or protect themselves. They had these syringes with, with the AIDS And, of course, you wouldn't know whether it was genuinely infected or not, not yeah. willing to take the chance. Well, in America, so. people were doing that with hepatitis C as well. They've if they're going to fight someone, they, they'd, I've got, they'd have the hepatitis C syringe right there. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I got out of the uh, that section, which was the cure, where things were much more tightly controlled. How long are you in the cure? Uh, for about four months there. Uh, the court sessions were once every six weeks. They were brief. They were meaningless. Nothing happened. I knew I'd be on trial for um, a couple of years. By the time I shook off this depression, um, I only saw one person um, successfully kill himself, an old man who poked his head between the oncoming truck, of a, a sand truck it was, what? very heavy. He was waiting to go to court. They just put the court chains on. He was sitting on the, the curbside. As this heavy truck bumped past, he thrust his head underneath, showing great willpower. The rear wheels spun on his skin and tore it sideways and his head twisted and popped. Oh. It sounded like a watermelon being dropped on the ground oh. and opening up. The truck passed. The guard told two of the trustees, move that mess with you. And um, they, they, they took the remains away, which sort of heavily bobbed on the gravelly ground as, as the neck was disconnected. Had you ever seen anything at that level of human... Well, Fatality before. In, I saw some odd things in Lebanon when I was exploring in my teenage years. Um, somebody had got, you know, they fish with um, uh, dynamite there. And uh, some they throw a little stick of a gelignite in, blows up and, and the fish float to the surface. Somebody threw one in the wrong place once and a guy was blown up. And one of uh, my hosts was saying, Look, he can pull funny faces now because all the uh, the bones underneath had been crushed. Uh, and so there was no um, holding strength to the skull. So that was weird. But this, you know, my reaction to that at the time, I'd been, I was at such a low ebb. I looked on at that and I thought, that brave old guy, now that you've got to admire doing something you know is going to work. Well, would you? My luck, I'd just end up a flat-headed guy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, um, I realized once this depression shifted that I had to get out of there, and, and that really helped. The, my, the American guy that had befriended me had swindled me out of $50,000 by going to my friends and draining them of just about everything, Lee, the good one. Yeah, Tommy was still up north talking a lot of nonsense about big shots. You know, the, the bigger the name they mention, the less likely anything is to happen. So I then went into that mode where everything you do is determined to get out. I found out the history of it, not good. 
Nobody had done much. Four guys tried to get out in uh, this bumbut place. I don't know how they kept control of the dormitory to stop somebody blowing the whistle and forming, but they did get out. They got down to the back fence near the kitchen, got to the wall, but they lied to each other. Nobody had a mobile phone. Nobody was coming from the outside. The hidden rope and grappling hook didn't exist. So three o'clock in the morning, they turn themselves in, have to wake up a guard to say, sorry, we, we broke out. What happened to them? They were thrown into the punishment cells, which is no cell. It's a coat locker. It's called the soy, which means street, of course. And that goes back to the days when punishments were being chained to the roadside within the prison. So the four guys that turned themselves in from an attempt with nobody hurt were thrown into these boxes with a, a, a bottle, not much bigger than that, of water, one of these a day, uh, a cup of rice, um, and it's lightless. A little letterbox slit is the only light. There's an old paint tin, which is your toilet arrangements. There's no washing or anything like that. And every day you're taken out and beaten. I could hear that uh, upstairs. You know these four guys were up there in these tiny coat lockers. You hear the crash of their elephant chains because they put the heavy 30-kilo ones onto their legs and welded those on. Um, they use a little pad so it doesn't actually cook your ankle while they're doing that welding. You could hear them. And the, the creepiest thing about it was that you wouldn't see this treatment. You'd hear it. So you could hear the scrape of their chains over the edge of the coat locker, their, their murmurs, because it was beyond the point of the nonsense of thank you, for, sir, for correcting me. It, it was just being brutalized with heavy sticks. And you hear the thwump of uh, wood into flesh, like something hitting a side of beef in an abattoir. And then high-pitched squeals where contact had been made with some vital organ or some part. And then uh, even some of the trustees, the worst creeps imaginable in place, would be sent down so they weren't witness to this. They didn't survive it. Within three months, uh, all except for the Singaporean uh, were dead. And when he got out, he never spoke again. And he was a color I've never seen on a human being. So that was my first report on what escapes were about. And I knew I certainly couldn't do anything from the section that I was in. So I paid my 2,500 uh, baht and transferred to Klong Prem Central, which was almost uh, relative freedom. Uh, the place was enlarged by the Japanese so that they could lock up as many of their cooperative uh, ties as they could. After all, Thailand was officially at war with Britain at that time. So there was enough space to uh, rent a cell, and they had this coffee shop, they called it, which was a general store, which had a way of turning your money that was in your account into cash for a fee of 25%. Everything was negotiable in there. So I went around the place and then found the building with the thinnest bars, and then began on a series of escape plans, which I suppose there were perhaps 15 or 16 of them, that ultimately left me on my own. Uh, 
alone to do it the old way, which was wall by wall, bar by bar, and making the equipment to do it. One other thing, because I think we're going to field a, a few questions soon, mm -hmm. aren't we? Um, it was hard to get people to go along with me because even the most optimistic of them would go along with the talk but then say, but David, this this isn't real. I mean, nobody has got out of here. It can't be done. Um, and of course, that only makes you feel like, well, it hasn't been done. And that surely is an advantage that is not expected in quite the same way. Um, but when people had tried, they'd failed miserably. Two Israelis had been through... Uh, Bangkok Central, and sent up to Chiang Mai. Now, they were resourceful guys. Uh, they were on a drug charge and facing life or death. In Chiang Mai, the prison wasn't much of an obstacle physically. They managed to get um, a couple of tools in and only had one little roof to get out of. But they had no, and this is a failure of most escapes, the post-jump plan was never in place. There were no <laughs> arrangements for what to do next. <laughs> oh, shit, we're out. Uh, taxi? No, that's out. Um, so they went to the guest house of the guy that sold them the dope in the first place, probably the worst place they could have uh, gone at all. They had about 12,000 US. They had no documentation. They were absolutely at the mercy of this guy who, over a space of 10 days or so, drained them of all that money with... You know, fantasy stories about trucks and documentation. Every second tuk-tuk and all of Chiang Mai had a little poster of their faces that the guards had paid for because they wanted them back in. You don't lose prisoners, especially foreigners, for crying out loud. Finally, when they were out of money, guess what happened? There's a reward going, mind. Who shops them? The guy. Yeah, the, the guest house owner, Yeah. <laughs> Are you in trouble, guys? <laughs> Don't know how. <laughs> Somebody must have talked. <laughs> right. So one crashes thoughtfully uh, straight out his side window and gets away. The other one uh, goes down with the struggle. But the one who crashed out, he got cut. He uh, ends up, well, he has no money really by this stage. Yeah, maybe a hundred. He's got tucked away. Uh, it's all, the story's all over town. Where do they get him? A bus stop. You know, a junction bus stop. Finish. point of this whole story is not just another one of failure, but when they were brought back to Bangkok, high security, they looked aside. They'd been taken by the guards into one of the dungeons and they'd taken iron bars and got angry about the threat to their jobs, livelihoods and reputation. And as you know, embarrassment uh, really becomes a major thing. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, they smashed their legs with iron bars and put rocks, heavy rocks on top of them. 
one was a little stronger than the other, managed to drag the other one out agonizingly and feed him water. And they kept each other alive so that, surprise, surprise, uh, they were in one piece. But when they arrived in Bangkok, their legs, which were still in heavy irons, looked like <clears throat> like a kid at McDonald's who grabbed all the drinking straws and crushed them in a tiny fist. They were all bent and twisted out of shape and scarred where bits of bone and fragments must have poked through the flesh and healed improperly. Uh, this, it will not surprise you to know, uh, deterred some of my cohorts in the escape plans who suddenly saw it as a real thing, but a, certainly a really fatal thing to do. So that drew a line through most of the plans, which... I'll go into when we get a moment. <laughs> you wanted more of David. He's kindly come back and started on section two, Escape from Thai Death Row. Unbelievable. We've done over two hours now. And we've not even got to the escape. So please show your love and support for David coming all this way over to the studio at such short notice fascinating us with this brilliant story please subscribe to his channel link is in the description box please go over and check his book out there's loads more stories in here than he has not um given us in the podcast yet so if you want to get the jump on that amazon worldwide you can buy this in america you can buy this in the uk he's also got his other book escape and links are below the, in the video and description box to his movie and also to his Danny Dyer episode. Now, I've printed out two pages of questions from you guys out there on YouTube. I really appreciate your interest in this and support. So we're going to conclude this podcast today with asking these questions. So, Steve... Um, Hi, Steve. <laughs> actually, I'm going to jump that, jump away from that because that's going to go into the Thai stuff that we're going to get to in the next one. All right, Num47. Does David think organized crime is more or less violent than back when he was on the job? Seems that people understand a form of etiquette, understood a form of etiquette that has been long lost with the false glamorization of that world along with everything else that mattered I wasn't around, but I missed the good old days. Well, people, Sean, of course, um, always like to look fondly back on the old days as though they were something good. Old school criminals, you know, honor amongst thieves. But I don't really think there's anything different about human behavior except that things are publicized, things are photographed, things are shared, things are known. Most of the, uh, the fears that the world is a much more wicked place comes from the fact that we know more about things. I don't think there was uh, ever more honor amongst thieves, though here in Britain we can say uh, we're the least likely, in my experience, to become informers. Um, this is... Uh, it happens, of course, but... It is a relatively rare thing compared to other countries where it is a, a popular option. So a lot of things go by fashion. The violence in organized crime, 
it's I think it's always been there. Uh, perhaps people get more imaginative in the atrocities, but uh, it's certainly simply that it is more well-known. After all, when things become well-known, they become more fearful. People are worried about their children being molested. I went through a childhood when that didn't matter. Uh, the advice from my 10th grade school teacher when I said that little Johnny wanted to put his willy in my bum-bum, he said, well, tell him that you didn't wipe up much last time and it's going to be a dirty thing. Uh, now the poor kid will be whipped into uh, counselling. So the, the difference is only A, fashion, and B, that everything is known. I mean, you dealt with the Colombians and Escobar. He authorised removing people's eyeballs with hot spoons. They would put um, petrol in your mouth until your eyeballs exploded and cover it with a cloth and stuff like that. Um, Cali Cartel came around, the more sophisticated. Oh, yeah. But they they also, they're they're hip. Their torturers were never idle. And now look at the Mexican cartels. I mean, they'll murder your entire family, the pet dog, and put it on YouTube. Well, there you are. It's kind of um, the the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said years ago. uh, Getting it known. Of course, on their part, it's just ridiculous self-indulgence. If they found themselves in that position where they were inclined to do that to somebody, they're they're running a very poor business, have made terrible choices. And do you think anybody would want to work for them ever? Imagine getting falsely accused in that setup. (laughs) It wouldn't be a gun on the table and say, well, do the honourable thing. You'd grab it and say, yeah, you bastard, you can go first. (laughs) Tom Atkinson, I'm intrigued by where he got his education and how he attained such street smarts. We mentioned earlier that you went to a state school, but then you had the money to go to an independent school. And I think part of the fascinating thing about you, David, is those contrasts you just come across as like a professor, like a PhD-level professor in history or something, the history of, of uh, the drug community, yet you've got such street smarts to be doing all these, these uh, deals and to be taking the risks of... You mean you just ended the podcast there with describing how these guys are almost beaten to death if they escape and it fails, mm. yet that's something now you're calculating that you're going to do. It's a unique skill set. Um, born by necessity, uh, I but also um, by fate. Apparently, those with a, uh, have a low resting heart rate are less averse to taking risks. Mine's about 55. Um, I don't feel fearful of something. I, I feel more fascinated by it. You know, eventually when the ground's crumbling away, <laughs> you get the hell out. But um, that in part is luck. But um, I think, if any of us closely observe uh, what's going on around, you do pick up on things. And you you learn a lesson that, here's the difference, You we all learn lessons, we all have examples put before us of good things, bad things, human behavior, but mostly we choose to draw a veil over it, to make exceptions for people, to say, girls are so often saying, I can change him. Uh, we make many excuses to forgive somebody um, in the same way that in reverse we make excuses to bring somebody on. You just like that person's company. I think that's why I got the job in advertising. They wanted me, they could tolerate me around the office as opposed to all the people who had training. 
So uh, I, I think also where scenes were at a street level, I knew about that. I'd used drugs. I'd had withdrawals. I didn't sell anything. I didn't try. Still no justification. But I was close enough to know about it. Even on a dealer's level, uh, when, I mean, uh, on a small level, when if you're sort of serving up locally, uh, I knew about that. The guy who rings you up that owes you money, uh, you don't really want to see him. Sean, I've got that money for you. Where are you? Uh, can I come over? Don't bring anybody with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sure you got that money you owe me? Yeah, I... You look out on the street because you know this guy and you see a taxi parked up the road with four guys in it and your man. <laughs> you know that he's got their money in his pocket and that's the only reason he's down to see you. And when he finally skedaddles up to you, he denies all knowledge of these people, even though you know what they're about. <laughs> he pulls out countersigned checks, coins from a phone box, every little crappy thing. And then when you finally relent and say, all right, take some of it and go, he said, listen, can I use your bathroom and a bit of that glucose from the kitchen? Fuck off. Just get out of here. <laughs> you want to wreck it, do it on your own terms. And don't bring those guys here. So you learn, you know, what scallywags get up to and you absorb all of that. So For experience. Adapt to it. Okay, this ties into that one. Johnny Wisdom 2. Can you ask David what was the psychological driving forces that led to his continuous pursuit of, of a dangerous career, e.g., did something happen growing up that compel, compelled him to prove himself by living life on the edge, or did he slowly become addicted to the thrill of the chase over time? Uh, a lot of people have said um, in their later years, well, I first got started because I wanted to meet girls. Well, that really wasn't the case with me, but there was um, a similar sense that I wanted... I was thwarted from a lot of my early teenage adventures by adults, the, the controlling world, and I, and I wanted uh, enough money to have the freedom that power has and, and pretty much to do what I want. I, and I couldn't see any reason why um, I should restrain myself unless there was any reason. But I don't think there was any deep yearning for either uh, the risk-taking or uh, a, a drive to prove anything. Um, I just wanted to know things and to understand it. Um, that's all. Somebody uh, has often spoken about that there are soldiers or, or generals that go into war, that they're more off, the good ones are, or successful ones are more like explorers which is search to, to find new places and new things. And that can often lead to danger. Like a frontierman. Mm. Okay, this is from Rouge Diablo 2. Red Devil, eh? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and there's two of them. <laughs> Please ask David his opinion of how corrupt the authorities are, how they can basically do whatever they want regardless of the law, if the government wants to get rid of you, then they can do whatever they need to get their man. Mm. Well, that's a broad question, and the, um, the location's important. Um, I suppose uh, authorities generally are corrupt uh, when they get the opportunity, 
they're more corrupt when a lot of them are already corrupt than the organization they join. If somebody becomes a policeman and they're all rotten, then he'll become the same way. Uh, he won't want to stand out. So people go along with the, the flow. <clears throat> do people in power and authority abuse their power? Of, of course they do. Um, but uh, mostly they deceive themselves that they're doing a little bit of good. Um, I think we have to look at people as not being all unified in their way. All of us in this world are little grubby individuals. Human nature. Can you ask him if he knew Terry Clark, the Kiwi drug trafficker, who also had an underbelly series made on him, and ask how his character in the movie and uh, the show compared to how he really was in reality back then? We, I didn't know him other than in passing in the corridors of courts, but we shared a, a lawyer at the same time, and he did say that... Um, he was um, <clears throat> uh, a bit of an adventurer, but not particularly violent, but naive in the same way. He did expect that his ex-wife wouldn't testify against him, and the lawyer prepared for it, and of course uh, uh, he, he never really... <clears throat> a little bit of vanity there, and, and couldn't bring himself to see past that, so ended up in trouble. Were you portrayed accurately in your movie? Um, there was a tone that Toby Schmitz, I think his name is, um, of manner that um, has some similarities. Uh, of course, it, it's our voices are, are, are different, but um, it could have been worse. I, I expected that was going to be you know, a cheaply made disaster, but it, it could have been worse. Clearly, it wasn't anything really much like it. But then again, I'm seeing it through my own particular version of history, I suppose. That que those questions came from Dada Dan, so thank you for those. Next question is back to Analog 2. Did Dave go to the same school as Keith Richards? Sounds like he did. Um, posh, but not really, really posh. Did it, why Can you get him to finish the story about the girl in smart heels? He went on to another thing and never finished it. Well, just to quickly uh, wrap up that story, uh, I was on a flight from uh, Cali uh, into Ecuador, um, and she was on leaving Cali. She was in the, the smart dress and the heels, and I ended up sitting next to her and talking, uh, and she told me... Uh, a fictional story about what she was doing and then I was leaving the next day so instead of being there a week she was just there one day and she was dressed very down she um, didn't have to tell me I wasn't going to be crass enough to say oh look you were doing a bit of a run there weren't you I made some snide remarks about her uh, I guess you're not doing the job interview you didn't have to dress up for the return trip or guess your sister wasn't home when you went there or something. But other than that, uh, I don't see any point in telling other people what you know. And it's a good lesson to know. There's no reason to tell people what you know unless there's some purpose to it. We should all wear that T-shirt that I've been thinking of printing saying, almost everything is not worth saying. <laughs> Loose lips sink ships. Mm. 
Samboy6661. What was the biggest amount of money you made from a deal and what did you do with it? 600,000 spent it carelessly. <laughs> Next question, Jack Fay 3 Seen him on Danny Dyer years ago. You wouldn't figure him for a dealer. Great guest all the same. Question is, did you ever do business with Howard Marks, a.k.a. Mr. Nice, and did you meet Chopper Reed in Jacka Jacka? Yes, Jacka Jacka, that place that is closed now. Okay, there's two parts there. Howard, yes, I met a couple of times, and we had the one thing in common, both betrayed by Lord Tony Moynihan, um, who died in unfortunate circumstances. Um, in You know what my own first mentor used to say from the safe-cracking day? Whenever somebody disappeared or was, you know, ended up wearing cement boots, you'd ask, what happened to Joe? Uh, he met with an accident, yeah. I don't know, it seems to have caught on. Of course, I'm not <laughs> suggesting Lord Tony met with an accident, but he did die nonetheless. Um, anyway, so Howard was warned uh, about uh, Tony, but in oh, never speak ill of the dead until they're actually really dead. But no, he his own vanity said, yes, but he'll be different with me. He might have been a double-crossing informer Stringer for MI6, uh, his lordship, and held together when Marcos was in power, but he won't treat me the same. Florida, eight years jail. Mm. Answer that one. As for, was it Chopper Reed? Chopper Reed in Jacka Jacka. Yeah, uh, that was the Supermax. He, uh, Chopper was, he was a bit of a comedian even in those days. He, um, he was not um, feared exactly, a, a little bit peculiar. Uh, he'd been stabbed a few times um, and very well played in the film by Eric Banana or Banas, his name. I watched the film about him. Yeah, yeah. great actor, actually. Very good. Um, but the, in that Supermax, the most feared man was Ted Eastwood. He was the Faraday Street kidnapper, snatched a busload of primary school children, wanted a million dollars in cash, which the state premier was thundering around in the outback in a suitcase with the said million um, and managed to get caught doing that. He was, Ted, he was a nice guy underneath it all, except for when he was killing somebody, which sounds a bit contradictory, but he was always going down to McDonald's getting the, the school kids what they wanted. That's uh, three strawberries and two vanillas. You know, he, he sort of made himself aware. But the police... When they arrested him for that uh, uh, kidnapping, they shot him. He survived that. And when he was in the supermax, he killed about five people. And you described some of those in Unforgiving Destiny, the supermax as a murderers. The two mm. of the murderers fight. Can you remember that one? Yes. Was this that was, him? This was the... No, he, he, I'd seen him earlier that week as he was asking me about something about... Um, his tuna available on the canteen, but he's cleaning his hands because he's got blood all over them, having dispatched um, uh, Alex and the uh, the killer in the, in the, the exercise yard. No, that the one that you're referring to was a dispute between uh, two people over some trivial crap, nothing. But um, Barry was the victim, and Alex poured. Um, hobby glue 
thick contact glue, half a tin of it, about 500 uh, milliliters all over him. Barry strangely sitting there saying, I think it's a practical joke. But if somebody's standing there pouring glue over you and then bunching up a box of matches with rubber bands, you can work out the rest? Uh, torched him. When I saw Barry in the corridor, it was just, he was black and charred and his testicles swollen to the size of apples. And he turned and some bit of him fell off and said to me, Dave, don't let that bastard, meaning Alex, get near my stereo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Barry, I'll, uh, I'll write on that for you. <clears throat> he died two hours later in um, hospital. Jesus. Was that uh, what the fight was over, his stereo or something? No, he, he just, that was a, a vulnerable thing. I think the fight was over the chair facing the wrong direction in there. Little things get, become big things in prison. Mm. Um. Andy Bernard won. Who was the most dangerous character you ever met? Interesting. <clears throat> dangerous, perhaps it's because I didn't know everything. And we always are most cautious about the people we suspect some things but don't know all. I met uh, a contract killer once, Jim, who's died now. And... We chatted about some things and how he had to let somebody go once because there was a dog there and he likes dogs and didn't want to kill the dog. But he was quiet and ruthless. Um, but just between the two of us, and only the most, after such time had passed that he really trusted me, he told me about a, a robbery he'd done and um, how he had to go through a special underground corridor that the post office had built with its own little railway track and intercept this, these money bags. And some um, workers came around a corridor unexpectedly and actually had to produce a gun. And then he, imitate, he, he recalled the way he spoke to them with this gun. And I, I won't even attempt to repeat it, but that gave me at the same time a chill, but also an appreciation of the absolute ruthlessness of, of this man. Wow. So, an unknown character, not one of the big ones. Comrade Kennedy Warren has asked more about the minutiae of smuggling and crime dealings, like rubies showing up on x-rays. Oh, yes, I read that. Being right. able to smuggle certain organic goods in wood because they look the same on an x-ray. Mm. There are a lot of things that... Um, you pick up um, out of need. One of the things I used to do was um, if I'd packed something or I was testing something for packing, um, I would take it down to Victoria Station where they have a left luggage depot there. Interesting thing is when you lodge your suitcase or whatever that it is for deposit, they put it through an X-ray machine so you're not leaving some bomb for them. When it passes through, the image of that X-ray on a fairly modern machine will be frozen on the screen as you pay for your ticket stub and chat and stroll around. It'll be there until the next person comes along. So <clears throat> it became a little testing station where I could build something, run it down to Victoria, get it up on the, the screen, uh, talk some nonsense, and then go around to the glass window and stare at it for long enough so I could test out 
the deep blue of uh, volatile organic chemicals or uh, the telltale ones of um, uh, esters and so on. Uh, it, it, it sort of brought chemistry to life for me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> James Davis, 13. Ah. Would your situation have been different if you had stayed to smuggling marijuana or if you had just stayed and committed crimes in Australia? You know, um, people are always in favour of the use and legalisation of the drugs that they use themselves. Um, when I suggest everything should be uh, legalised because it would solve so many problems, they draw a line through the ones that they don't use. And it's always always the case. Now, marijuana, okay, uh, I might be more socially acceptable than the leper that I am today. But on the other hand, um, I probably would have fallen for that thing where you say, gee, what I'm doing is not... I mean, it's so natural it grows in the ground. It doesn't matter uh, after all. One of the bloodiest gunfights I've ever seen on a beach between smugglers and authorities that left dead bodies strewn all over the place and turned that sound, sand red. You know what they were smuggling? Something that attracted a 400% profit overnight. Garlic. What's garlic? Yep. Oh. Malaysia slapped a 400% surcharge on it and for a year the tires were running it over there. Jesus. There was bloodshed. <clears throat> wow. This one is from CTON3. Was your intention to go on Danny Dyer to throw the police off and make them think you were retired? <laughs> At some time after he was, because you were arrested later on? Mm. Well, uh, that would have been okay. uh, really a kind of hard way to do it. Look, Danny, I want to go on your show, not because you're, you know, you'll even remember this conversation in the morning, but because I want to fool the police by telling them a whole lot of stuff about me and bringing my face into theirs. Yeah, that's a foolproof thing. No, sorry to say that was not the intention at all. It was actually to um, promote Escape, um, the first book, which was edited out of the production because they wanted to make it seem like they had a scoop on finding me on the run. It was childish and pathetic, but then again, this was a very B-grade B production, that one from Bravo Pictures. And Blink on here, Scottish bank robber, and they sent the Danny Dyer up crew to interview him. Deadliest man. They found there was a bomb found under his car at this point in time, mm. and they got so scared, they abandoned having him on the deadliest men. Oh, so he didn't yeah. have he didn't have kind things to say about those people. No, I suppose not. Um, and I don't think Danny's heart was in it anyway. I don't know who was more stoned on the day, but at least my choice of drugs kept me awake. <laughs> <laughs> Glock Lesnar too. Yeah. I like the names people, the little handles people give themselves. <laughs> Well, you definitely Sledgehammer Forty Seven. Obviously, a nice. <laughs> well, you're definitely not a leper on YouTube. I think you're at about ninety-eight percent approval rating right now. It's one of the highest approved videos I've got on my channel. Oh, right. Did you come across or do business with Mister Asia and the New Zealand connection? He was somebody else who uh, featured in the Underbelly series. Okay. Um, again, uh, a similar lawyer. Uh, again, wife trouble. I can't say any more about him. Okay, I hear. Let's see. Um, 
Do do you feel guilty about the guys who helped you escape being subject to heavier irons and tougher conditions? I actually answered uh, that person uh, when I saw that question came up. Of course, it wasn't good for them, but I, I made the comparison that if we're on the Titanic and uh, would you feel guilty having one deck chair that you were floating around on, uh, swimming away from others who would surely drag you down into the depths? Maybe a little, but you'll live with it. And I sent them care packages afterwards and kept in touch. Yeah. And even offered one, oh, if you want to get out, I'll help. Right, so you did as much as you could under the circumstances. Mm. Right, so this podcast is drawing to a close here now. Like I said earlier, please show your love and support for David by leaving comments, questions, likes, and sharing this video. And, you know, David's enjoying reading this stuff and it motivates him to come back and respond to you guys. And that's true. Great if we can keep this going. So we appreciate your, your high ranking of this video. And if you've got anything you'd like to say in conclusion. Well, um, we really took so much time. Um, I hope it wasn't too dull for anybody out there. But um, we'll cut more to the chase, I think, and get into the uh, the difficulties of that tie escape for sure when we kick off here next time. So that's the cliffhanger. Mm. Yes. Literally. Okay. Good to see you again, Sean. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.